Where do I start? How do I train recall? How long should we work on healing before moving on? Is crate training really that important? We hear these questions all the time and there's one answer that will help with all of them. The complete step-by-step dog training course found at Standing Stone Supply. They break down the what, when, where, and how to train your own dog from eight weeks to one year old. They've got it all laid out for you down to even the daily activity checklist to keep you and your puppy on track. Check out standingstonesupply.com and remember to use code GDIY to save 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. I encourage with a lot of our young dog, puppy dog owners, you know, it's that whole thing with, you know, if your dog brings you something, the only thing that out of your mouth should be good dog. And I don't care if it's your wife's or your personal, you know, Louis Vuitton shoes. One thing we all love to do with our dogs is hit the road and go on new adventures. In order for that to happen, we have to be able to safely and efficiently travel with our dogs. Dakota 283 is dedicated to building unparalleled pet protection and tailgate lifestyle products for you and your best friends. Their one-piece roto-molded kennels have many options such as the Hero Series for military-grade crates, T1 low-profile kennels that will fit truck beds with tonneau covers, and their most popular G3 Series that's available in any size you'll need. Dakota not only offers many different sizes and styles of kennels, they also offer products and accessories to help with food and water transport, truck bed storage, and even grooming stations. Have a new puppy and only want to buy one kennel instead of buying multiple ones as they grow? Look at the Forever Kennel Insert Divider that gives you the ability to buy a kennel now and adjust the size inside as needed. No matter what you need to get you on your next adventure with your dog, Dakota has it for you. Check them out now at dakota283.com. Your new 283 lifestyle is just one click and free shipping away. All right, and we're back with another week of GDIY. I hope everybody's doing good. Joe is here with me as usual. Joe, what's going on over there, buddy? Man, living the dream. Just uh, just another week. Another week in paradise. <laughs> another week in paradise, man. Juggling, you know, being a new dad and everything like that. Now that season's basically officially over, time yeah. to uh, time to train Jack on some uh, on some turkey. On some turkey, huh? Yeah. You're getting ready yeah. for turkey season. Uh, I've given up on the uh, retrieving of Jack, and hopefully he's he'll be a turkey dog. <laughs> All right. Well, I got a number for you to call. You can call uh, old Steve Kinder. There uh, we go. He's, he's the one that did the turkey dog episode with us. And uh, hey, he uses setters for uh, for his oh, turkey man. dogs. There, there we go. Turkey right setter, setter crosses, if I remember correctly. But uh, but yeah, you know, you you can you can put them to use. Yeah, Jack's <laughs> from Nebraska. He's probably not full setter. <laughs> Who knows? You don't have papers on them. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Uh, well, yeah, so uh, we are going to keep this one quick. Um, we went a little long this week, but it's a, kind of a unique episode. We haven't done this before. After uh, after the last episode with Angie Barron, she kind of threw out uh, the gauntlet, threw, threw it down, and uh, challenged Scott Caldwell to come on, do a kind of a, uh, uh, a joint episode, and discuss 
debate, whatever you want to call it, certain topics that uh, that we agreed upon beforehand. And and, and it, it's a really good testament to uh, just getting two people that really know a lot about dogs, but have have their certain ways and their certain methods talk about it. And, and I think, you know, it, talking to a lot of people that first enter this dog world, they kind of get uh, taken aback by how direct people can be with this is the Mm -hmm. way to do it this is the only way to do it if you don't do it this way then you're gonna screw up your dog and blah 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 and uh it's simply not true uh you know and angie and scott's a great example of this to where you know the the why is there but the the how is completely different and so it was a fun episode we cover a lot of topics a lot of good topics uh maybe some of their opinions uh, make some people mad. Maybe some people are sitting there rooting <laughs> for one or the other. Who knows? But uh, I thought it was a fun episode and a unique uh, concept. So if people like this, let us know. We may do it again. May change it up on different trainers or something. So so on so forth. You know, making occasional uh, trainer fights series or something. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was fun. Something a little different to throw out to you guys. Yeah, I need to get the fight bell. That ever you know, <laughs> ding 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 ding. ding. But you know what, you know, this is one of the reasons why we started this podcast too, is, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, there's so much hate and vitriol whenever you bring up, you know, one way of training or anything like that. (laughs) This is a great example of two people who really know what they're talking about and they can have a awesome discussion about it where everything is cordial and nice and honestly like funny. Like yeah. they, you, you can joke around, you'll hear, you know, a, a couple of funny jokes that they, that they poke at each other, but you know, it's, it's lighthearted, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about dogs, you know? So yeah. I, I think it's a great example of, uh, maybe how, uh, these conversations should go from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, uh, before you ask, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, we're going to skip the tip of the week this week. Um, I have one, but I'm going to save it for next week. Maybe when the, the episode's a little shorter and we need the nice, time, okay. but, uh, but yeah, I didn't get one from the listeners, so I didn't feel like there was anything that I really had to get out there. Again, it's like every time I throw this out there to the listeners, somebody comes up with it, but I need it on a weekly basis. Somebody give me a good tip of the week that helps out the community out there and, and really helps people uh, train in whatever different environments we're all in. Yeah, I'm tired of hearing about all your tips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't let's, blame let's, let's, let's get something new. Yep. Well, speaking of new, you got a uh, re- quick review for us this week. Oh man, great! Uh, and I'm going to say, speaking of new, also, this review is called "Great New Direction." Uh oh, from Jake Weir. Been a li- listener since the beginning. Love the new direction of the show by grouping together particular subjects and having different guests provide their knowledge. Can't wait to see what's next. Thanks, Jake. Yeah, appreciate that, Jake. Reach out to us. Uh, yep. You know, it's shoot us an email, gundog at yourself at gmail.com. We'll shoot you a sticker, fire that off your your way. Uh, everybody else, follow us, you know, typical stuff, Facebook, Instagram, gundog at yourself. Patreon is patreon.com forward slash gundog at yourself. Uh, Dakota 283, if you are looking at getting a kennel, check them out. We do have a, a discount code for you. It's GDIY10 for 10% off. If you need anything more than that, then sign up for Patreon, and we'll be sure to give you a better code than uh, than the 10% one. Yeah, had them back in my truck uh, on the way into the snow oculus in, uh, in Texas, and on the way back, kept them warm, <laughs> just threw a couple of blankets in there. They were great. Without Dakota, then Jack wouldn't have made it back safe, right? That's right. <laughs> All right. I wouldn't well, have a future turkey dog. 
Yeah, yeah. So, all right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoy. Seriously, let us know if you like this type of episode. Uh, I think it is something fun and a, a neat, neat concept that we can kind of play with with different trainers as we go along. So, uh, if you guys like it, definitely let us know, and uh, we'll check back next week. Yep. See you guys. Picture this. You just finished a long day's hunt or a long day in the training field grooming your next champion. You've run through your entire string of dogs in anticipation for the next fall. You think the day's over. It's not though. Your day's not over until you let that ugly dog hunt. No hunting or training session is complete without capping it off with one of the spirits from Ugly Dog Distillery. They're Michigan raised and purebred handcrafted spirits. They have everything you need from vodka and gin to your more traditional after hunt choice Kentucky bourbon. Head on over to UglyDogDistillery.com to check availability within your state. And if you have an upcoming event that's alcohol friendly, then be sure to reach out to us and see if we can add another Ugly Dog to the lineup. We'll tell you right now, we aren't much on flavored whiskeys, but you have to try their peanut butter whiskey. Unlike other peanut butter whiskeys out there, Ugly Dogs is made with real Kentucky bourbon and not just grain alcohol with syrup. So after your next hunt or a long day of testing and you're trying to decide what to drink, reach for the bottle with Ruger, the German wire hair pointer on it. It was handcrafted by people just like us, dog people. Every adventure starts somewhere. Make sure yours includes an ugly dog at your side. Explore responsibly. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another week of GDIY. This week, we actually have something a little different for you guys. We have Scott Caldwell, the the you know neighborhood-friendly dog trainer, we like to call him down here, and then Angie Barron, who's up in Canada and had nothing better to do but hop on. And she, after the last episode we did a few weeks ago, Angie was talking about how you know she, she really enjoys the episodes with Scott. And then she kind of threw out an interesting little idea about what if we got Scott on and did kind of a little trainer debate uh, to where we kind of pick a few topics and let two trainers who very clearly understand how dogs learn, how they behave, and have a good understanding of that, but kind of different methods on how they do a lot of it to uh, discuss uh, amongst each other on their viewpoints on why they do things a certain way. Uh, so, I told Scott, he said, let's do it. Let's hop on. So we came up with a few good topics and, uh, you know, guys, thanks for coming on. I'm looking forward to kind of seeing this trainer fight develop throughout this, uh, (laughs) podcast episode. I was going to say, I'm sitting here waiting to hear the fight. Yeah. The the HBO intro. Are you ready to rumble? (laughs) 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 but it it really is a good idea because you know in the dog world so many people get get caught up in their their own opinions and my way is the correct way and so it's just like everybody learns so much better when everybody can just discuss their methods and and the reason why it's quote unquote their methods and why they prefer to do things but uh you know with with you two this is really just going to be me kind of moderating it and trying to keep you guys from, uh, you know, talking for five hours. <laughs> going down too uh, many rabbit really holes. going to turn into. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so uh, you know, real quick, um, anybody that's listening to this podcast, both both Angie and Scott have been on the on the podcast numerous times. Angie's been on a couple times. Oh. Scott's been on, you know. Yeah, I don't even know how many times I'm, at this. I'm point. a regular, but uh, you know, go back and. Yeah, yeah. Go back and listen to any of their episodes if you want to kind of get to know know, uh, them and what they do, and we'll kind of plug their stuff at the end as always. But uh, 
let's go ahead and get into the first topic. And th- this is really the the main main chunk that we wanted to talk about this evening. And, and it's going to kind of probably pop up in the, into the other topics as we move forward. But uh, what, what me and Scott kind of call impulse control down here. And I think, Angie, you have a different terminology for it uh, up where you are. Um, so, Scott, do you want to kind of define in, in your own words what impulse control is? And then, Angie, describe in, in your uh, words what it is. Yeah. I mean, in full disclosure, me and Angie have talked, you know, kind of a little bit prior to this uh, podcast. But, you know, from my from my knowledge and, and from my experience and stuff, what, what I call impulse control is it's it's exactly what it, it kind of looks like if you were to look up both those words in the dictionary that's exactly what we're trying to achieve with our with our gun dog and that really starts it's a it's an obedience type behavior that translates over to the gun dog training that we do so impulse control for us down here is is typically you know, all those things that relate to good home training, you know, uh, a little bit of place work, uh, being able to set that food dish down and releasing your dog to eat. Um, it's the impulse to barge out the door prior to you going out or even bouncing off the door while you're walking up to the door. Okay. It's basically putting that dog at a level of, of, I'd say cooperation and, 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 competency where the, the dog understands that you're pretty much the pack leader. You, you designate when that dog is allowed to do certain actions. Um, and that translates later on over to place board work. And then of course, steadiness work uh, a little bit later on, because realistically for us, th- that puppy pounce or that drive to break at, I'll say either the shot or the flush or prior to the flush and stuff. That's that dog's impulse to go get it. Okay. These dogs were all bred and and have the genetics that they could probably do most of this stuff themselves. If they were in the wild, let genetics take over. And, you know, that's where this whole thing uh, with the pointing comes in. It's kind of the, the pause before the pounce anyway. And that little bit of a stalk, almost like a cat. Um, we kind of short circuit that and say, no, 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 you don't go all the way until I come up, flush the bird, shoot the bird, and then I can allow you to go get it. So it is a little bit of establishment as, as the pack leader within that dog. Yeah. So Angie, what, what, what do you call it in, in your own program? Cause Scott just described it, you know, pretty much you're, you're taking the dog's natural impulse to do anything, whether it's chase or, or pounce or anything and, and kind of controlling it to within what you're, you're trying to guide the dog to do. What, what do you describe it in your own program as? Well, and I mean, this is why terminology is important, right? Because when Scott yes. said impulse control, what I had in my mind was more of what I would call drive capping, basically. So if you've got a dog that you throw a bumper and you have that dog running out over uh, out to the bumper and you want them to sit halfway to the bumper, you say sit, the dog sits, right? So that's what I would call drive capping or impulse control, right? But I mean, Scott described it very, very well. It's just that, you know, initially we were kind of on different pages for that when we heard the exact same word. So this is why terminology is important. 
Absolutely. But now we're on the same page. <laughs> okay. I think Angie was calling it uh, in one of her previous segments. I think Angie was really calling it more management. And, and it, I would even add the impulse to that, the impulse management side of, of what she does with her dogs. Well, okay. So with management, basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep the impulses of, Ooh, I want to go to this shoe. We just don't let it happen in the first place, as opposed to taking the dog that wants to chew the shoe and saying, no, you can't chew that shoe. We just don't let it happen in the first place. So they don't get the desire to chew the shoe. Yeah. Makes sense. So you're kind of managing the, the equation or the situation before the, the opportunity even presents itself. It'd be kind of like in uh, Scott's example of, of the dog in the field with the bird that, that pause before the pounce and, and getting the point pretty much you're controlling the situation so that the dog can't even get on the bird in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Scott's definition or, or explanation, he ca- came up with a few good, uh, around the house drills that people can do, you know, the food bowl before uh, making sure that they go to the food when you release them or not crashing through the door or what have you, you know, when you talk to a lot of people that live with their dogs inside their house, they see it as kind of a, uh, I, I don't know, again, terminology is king here, right, Angie? I don't I don't know the right word to describe it. A lot of people might turn their nose up at it, like saying, oh, you're being overbearing. Uh, I don't care to be that, you know, have that, that obedient of a dog. But what they, I think that they don't really understand is what Scott was alluding to is what it really stems into later. And, and it's really setting a pattern up for you know, steadiness mainly and, and releasing and controlling that impulse to just dive out the door, to dive at the food. What are some other examples that your average dog trainer and handler can do on an everyday basis around the house that really lends itself to to really managing or, or controlling the dog's impulses? Well, it's actually funny because when me and Scott were talking about this before and he was saying like, okay, well, you know, keeping the dog from diving into the food or bolting out the door, he was like, what would you call that? And I was like, good training. (laughs) 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 Yep. (laughs) But uh, I mean, one of my favorite things to do at the door is, whoa, right? Especially if you Mm -hmm. have stairs coming down to the door. And so you have a distinct borderline where the dog is not allowed to pass and their paws are right on the edge of that stair and you say whoa and you throw that door open and that dog has to stay woed until you release them and so it's not necessarily a dominance thing but it's just you get the thing that you want by doing the thing that i tell you so it builds instead of taking motivation away from if you don't listen to me or else we're going into okay if you listen to me you get this thing that you want and life is infinitely better for you when you do the thing that I want you to do. Right. And Angie, you don't think that that's a little bit just, I'll say pack driven, like the the mentality of the dogs and understanding hierarchy within their family structure, whether that's a dog and a husband, wife and kid, or just a person or something along those lines. Well, it is absolutely pack structure, but it's not in the sense of you have to listen to me or else. What we're doing is we're teaching the dog that there is value in listening to you and that you are 
basically a leader that makes good decisions and that they get further by listening to you instead of trying to go off on their own way. Because gotcha. dogs are not prepared. Like they do not have the skill set to be able to lead in our world. They don't have a clue how to do that. So we need to do it for them. And there's two ways you can do that, right? You can either say like, no, you have to do this because I told you to do it. Or it's, hey, come follow me because your life is going to be way better if you listen to me, right? It's just like having a good job where you have a good boss that you have no intention of saying like, hey, I want your job because I could do it better than you. It's like, hey, this guy knows what he's doing and my life is very comfortable with him as the leader. I like it this way. You know, Nick, I got to say, the one thing I've enjoyed um, when Angie's been on and stuff like that, and I think me and you talked about it one time, is that um, guys like me, um, guys, you know, there's a few others out there that I know that we've been training for a long time and we've been doing this for, you know, decades. And a lot of the old time bird dog trainers, we did it and we did it by grind, meaning that, you know, Oh, this didn't work. Let me try this. Oh, this didn't work. Let me try that. Or we went to a seminar one time and was like, okay, let me try this. And if it worked great, if it didn't not without really knowing a lot of the background behind it, like what, what makes a dog do what they do. And kind of one of the cool things I like about listening to Angie, and we were talking about this the other day was she almost puts a definition to what we do on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it's not that our methods are hugely different. Um, it's just a matter of now I understand why, you know, and that that's what this podcast is all about for a lot of it is understanding why we do what we do and why we train a certain way and, and why certain actions get reactions out of dogs. And and you can, you can admit, and Angie will probably agree is that some of your greatest bird dog trainers are just your, I'll say your gun dog trainers in general, are guys that have been doing this for an unseeable amount of time. They've been doing it forever. And basically they've learned to be able to read that dog, read that dog's body language and actions, and then come up or formulate a plan on how to alter those actions to suit what they're trying to accomplish. No, I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is. I, I've been saying it for a while, just from, you know, clearly I'm no expert. I'm not, I'm not a pro trainer. I've had very limited exposure to how many dogs I've actually trained myself. I've helped quite a few people at training days or whatever, but I tell everybody like the, the best trainers that I know, and I've had the fortune of talking to it's when you really get to see them work with dogs, it's not so much that they've read more books. It's not so much Mm -hmm. that they've talked to more people. It's just that they have an uncanny ability through experience or just, you know, some people it just becomes more natural to them of reading that dog in their, in their body language. And, and they realize what the dog is trying to tell them. And they kind of know how to move based on how that dog is moving towards them. Right. And, and that's really what a lot of this that we're talking about on this impulse control goes to is, is you're really fighting that dog's natural impulse to go do X when you want them to do Y. And, and that's really, I guess we could really kind of define that as that's all of dog training. It's it's not just steadiness or doing stuff around the house, but it's really we're just trying to take the dog dog's natural desire and want, we're trying to make our desire their natural desire and get them to do what we want, kind of like what Angie was saying. 
Yeah. And if Angie wants to expand upon this a little bit is, you know, I, I relate everything to our gun dog training and stuff like that. But I mean, I really think that if you set, you know, for your listeners and stuff, if you set these, these foundations and you set these, these kind of really basic skills into a dog early, then I can, I won't say I can guarantee, but I, I, I can probably guess that most of the rest of the training will go a lot smoother than if you just let that dog run fairly milly nilly in the house. And I've heard this, and this is one of those Scott pet peeves. And I don't know how Angie feels about it, but a lot of, I know a lot of people that say, well, everybody says I'm not supposed to train my dog or formally train my dog until it's a year old. There's a lot that happens in that first year. A lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think yeah. that stems, stems from a few books that have really promoted the one-year rule. And, and I think that really is like, can you get away with doing that with a hunting dog that you only want to hunt? I, you know, probably. But if you're if you're wanting a companion, a dog that stays with you in your house and goes to other places and does other things besides, you know, being an outdoor kennel and come out once every hunting season, I, there's just so much more other stuff that you can be teaching that dog within the first year that uh, that you just miss out on if, if you really go by that sentiment. Well, and part of that goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? When you go look at those old school trainers. So like if you go in any of these Facebook groups and you ask for a recommendation on a book you need to read for training bird dogs, chances are they're going to give you something that was published somewhere between 1950 and 1980. (laughs) And so when they say like, oh yeah, you know, you should start training your dog until they're a year old. Well, as far as those guys were concerned, they didn't do any training with their dog until they were year old. But their habits and just what they naturally did, they didn't call it training, but they were training. They may not have put those pieces together because they don't have the they didn't have the knowledge that we have now with regards to early puppy development and all that stuff. They just kind of did it without even realizing mm-hmm. that they were doing it. Yeah. And and to to your point, everything in dog training is completely different. You know, there, there are elements that are the same. That the, there are some methods that way back when you can contribute now, but just the way what you're talking about earlier, the terminology, it, it is different. There's names to things that they didn't have names to back then. And mm-hmm. one of those things that I, I want to d- jump into right now is pressure. Okay, <laughs> that pressure is kind of a hot topic word for a lot of people, okay? And, you know, we've talked about it a number of times on this, but I got both of you, so I want to let I can define- feel Scott practicing that <laughs> impulse control right now. <laughs> can we go back? Well, can we go backwards? We're, we're, we're going to get... <laughs> so I, I want both of your, your guys' definition just a real simple definition of pressure and, and, and we're going to, I'm going to start going down the rabbit holes with questions after that, but just give me your basic summed up definition of pressure. I'm going to let Angie take this one first. Oh, I guess you go first. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> it really, so yeah, well it just depends on the dog. <clears throat> 
Right. So, I mean, like you were taught, like we were talking about on the phone there when you were talking about perceived pressure. Right. So I may look at my dog who's not doing what he's supposed to do. And I'd be like, Hey, stop that. And my dog might look at me and be like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Whereas another dog might look at me and go and cower under the couch because I've just totally destroyed their little hearts. And so, how to define pressure now? I was really hoping Scott would go first. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, pressure, like I said, it's really how the dog perceives as pressure. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be something bad. Just it can, like, pressure can even be motivation. Right. I mean, even for me, if I say, if I say, I'm going to do something like this, like someone says, don't play tug of war, tug of war with your gun dog. I'm going to be like, yeah, watch me. I'm going to play tug of war with my gun dog. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. So Scott, take a stab at it because I already know where I want to go with it (laughs) after you you to give us your definition of it. I look at, I look at pressure two different ways and and maybe uh, Angie kind of, she hinted upon it, but I see pressure as an as like an actual pressure, which could be, I guess, defined almost as a physical pressure, where the dog is being either stimulated some way, and stimulated doesn't mean a collar and electricity. It could be literally putting your hands on the dog and, and pressing on its butt to push it down to the sit position. Um, it could be physical pressure, or like Angie had mentioned, the perceived pressure. The, the 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 dog is basically in a mindset that it's already in a like I'll say in a in a negative type environment, but it's already kind of like waiting for the hammer to fall, if you will. You know what I mean? Um, and and when it comes to dog training, those those two things, if there's anything else that somebody can really, I would say it's one of those things where you have to see a a couple of dogs to be able to understand it is that, you know, understanding what your dog's threshold is and what is your dog's body language when it comes to both in actuality. So pressure, you know, physical pressure could be anything from a leash to um, manually manipulating the dog, moving the dog, uh, force fetch tables, a great, great example of that, where you're applying some sort of physical pressure to the dog to get a reaction and teach a skill. And, um, the dog learns how to turn that off by accomplishing that skill. Um, and then perceived pressure could be exactly what Angie was saying, you know, just a look sometimes our body language sometimes, um, the, if a dog's been overworked or I won't say overworked, but has been worked consistently in the same area, I've seen dogs that as they even approach that area, they've already correlated that, that training scenario or that environment has a negative, um, kind of feel to the whole thing. And you'll see them actually start to shut down before you even begin any type of formal training. Um, so, and, and perceived pressure doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. Um, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the perceive the, the perception of a dog getting ready to go, you know, hunt a field, 
And, you know, or even we'll talk about this. Here's a great example. Tailgate manners. Nick, how many times have you been hunting with friends, buddies, or been at a training day where a guy is literally wrestling with a dog on the tailgate to get a collar on before they get ready to go to the field? Because that dog knows what it's getting ready to go to. And it's got that, you know, he's really, he's already putting himself in a pressure type situation and, and, you know, is ramped up and everything else. And that could have condensations later on as you get ready to move on. Um, That's where I see a lot of dogs between, you see that with a lot of younger dogs and it goes back to that impulse control a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, With, you know, dogs that just don't understand, okay, this is the sequence of events. This is... Uh, like Angie said, if I just sit here for 30 seconds and be calm, I'm going to get to go tear that field up and I'm going to have a possibility of getting a bird in my mouth <laughs> yeah. versus screw you. Yep. Let me out of this box. Let me off this truck. I'm going to go find everything I can find, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> and to caveat off that, I'm going to kind of mesh a few things that have already been said over the, the course of this episode already. You know, Angie talked about terminology at the start of this. Then we started talking about some old school trainers versus new school trainers and how the terminology fits within it. So, a lot, you know, when you talk about an old school trainer uh, for, for right, wrong or indifferent, a lot of people might view that as too much pressure. Uh, you know, they... What did they used to say all the time? I, you know, they break dogs instead of train dogs. Right. Now people talk about how they train dogs instead of they break dogs. But now you hear a lot about these quote unquote pressure free methods or purely positive methods. I want to talk to you guys about just based on how you talked about pressure and how there's a difference between actual pressure and perceived pressure. Is there really such thing? as a purely positive method of training who do you want to go first absolutely not there is no such thing as purely positive training i know that people like to call it that but if you go back to episode 43 on the whys of training and we kind of went over that terminology so positive mm-hmm. reinforcement is adding something so positive not good it's positive and negative is not good or bad. Positive just simply means we're adding something and reinforcement means that we are adding something to make the behavior more likely to occur in the future. So everybody knows the example of you give the dog, you ask the dog to sit, the dog sits, you give them the cookie to make them more likely to sit on command in the future. So the opposite to this is now what happens if the dog doesn't sit. Well, you take the cookie away. So a lot of people define that as positive reinforcement training. It's not. By taking that cookie away, you just use negative punishment because you are taking something away to make the behavior less likely to reoccur in the future, which is punishment. Mm -hmm. And, And that you just did a great job of really summing up behavioral theory and like you said we covered that on previous episodes so if you want to jump in that uh you, you jump down that rabbit hole go listen to that because you know the i think that is really where this this difference of opinion comes from as people say you know I, i'm i'm a purely positive trainer and, and i think it stems from a 
a difference in the terminology of the word positive. They're not looking at it from a mathematical standpoint, positive and negative being adding something, taking something away, right? They're, they're using it as how we use it in our language about, you know, that's a positive outlook on things and so on and so forth. Scott, are, I'm assuming you, you're on the same uh, same belief that Angie is on that. Yeah, there, there's, and we could even dive into the definition or the terminology on us. There's, there's individuals and, and I'll say organizations and kennels out there that promote a purely positive training system, which in all reality, it, what it is, is a low or supposedly no pressure training system. And even in that, there's no such thing. It, that goes back to the whole thing we were just talking about with either a, a real actual pr- pressure, physical pressure, or a perceived pressure. The dog's going to still see, have some sort of pressure applied to it when you're training. Okay. It, it, you could be in that positive, whatever, um, block all day long. And then like Angie says, when you remove that food reward or whatever that reward for that dog is, then it becomes a negative punishment situation. But that dog is still feeling pressure at that point to what just happened. What do you mean? I didn't get it. Why not? Why didn't I get it? Do you understand? So, I mean, it really kind of comes down to the, (laughs) what people like to think is, oh, my dog's not getting shocked. My dog's not getting beat. My dog's not being worked on a choke chain. My dog's not doing this. I'm telling you, there's, there's trainers out there. There's a bunch of them that don't rely on an e-collar turned up to 10 in order to get some sort of performance out of these dogs. Um, most of my clients would argue I'm probably the lowest pressure trainer on, you know, on the East coast. I mean, I, I barely, rarely, we use an e-collar to, uh, promote and to, um, once a skill has been taught to assist with that, that skill development, but it's, it's generally at the very lowest setting or, you know, lowest setting that that dog can understand and realize that, okay, yes, this is what this person is asking me. Or like we had talked in the past, you know, when, when I say you have to make a correction, if you have to make a correction, that correction has to have consequence, but that dog has to understand what that consequence is and, and understand how it relates to the skill that you're teaching it. So, um, you know, that's where knowledge, I say knowledge is power, but I mean, that that's really understanding, you know, these dogs a little bit. And if, if you even think you're messing up or doing, call and talk to somebody, anybody that's a decent trainer. I know my phone is pretty much open. I know Angie's phone is pretty much open. I know that you just said you were talking to me. You had just literally this afternoon, had brought a guy with a Boykin out and did some, just some work with him. Just ask somebody, just, just reach out to somebody that has been in this, you know, that's been doing this a little while and get a little bit of feedback if you're worried. So I want to, I'm going to be honest. So, so far this debater, AKA trainer fight (laughs) kind of sucks because it's not a debate (laughs) fight right now. Uh, (laughs) Don't play tug of war with your dogs. 
<laughs> How dare <laughs> you? <laughs> well, I, I was I was about to go into let's let's talk about um, driving with force because and, and really what I mean by that is kind of your force fetch programs because we, we we can sit there and talk about the purely positive methods for the rest of the episode, but you know that's probably an episode for, for later on down the road. But I want to touch on let's get into something that y'all have completely different methods on, and that's really uh, when I say driving with force. Scott, you've talked a number of times that your force fetch program is not complete until you're doing uh, how far of a blind that you're doing? 50 yards across water. With your dogs? 50 yards. And and you do use what you call driving with force, and you do use the e-collar with that. So let's talk retrieving and retrieving methods because I know Angie talked a couple weeks ago uh, about how she does her retrieving method, and it is definitely not – Kind of the same method as you guys do. So, Scott, real quick, give your recap of your training method. Then, Angie, I want a recap of yours. And then, you know, we'll ring the bell and you can fight it out. Okay. So, f- for us, we use, we, we use a pretty tried and true method. Uh, we use the toe hitch. Uh, and then, it's before we leave the table, we do overlay the e-collar. Um, the key with that is, is that e-collar pressure has to be equal or slightly greater than what that dog's pressure or perceived pressure from that toe hitch is. And this is where a lot of people get into a hurdle, even with ear pinch or anything along those lines, is that transition to collar, e-collar. And sometimes it does result where you're a little, you know, um, people feel uncomfortable about it because uh, the dog is really making the choice not to, I would say, argue or not to basically, you know, be very defiant and say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. You're taking that choice away. I shouldn't say you're taking it away. You're, you're making that dog understand that the choice to put that object in that dog, in his mouth or her mouth is better than, you know, the, the consequence of that pressure. Um, Sometimes it's low, sometimes it's medium. Rarely have I ever had to go high on a dog. Uh, but the the key thing is to make sure that, you know, when you're doing and you're starting that, um, that that pressure from that collar is equal to what you're doing with your toe hitch or your, or your ear pinch. Um, and I think some people struggle with that. But for us, that, that same pressure is utilized all the way until the dog comes off the table. By then we don't transition a dog from the table to the ground until we fully believe that that dog understands the skill and understands the concept of when I feel that tickle on my neck, I need to grab that object that's in front of me or placed in front of me or is down the table in front of me. Okay. Um, and with that's our mechanism to once we move to the ground to push that dog away from us to go and pick up an object or go in a direction that we want that dog to go. It's true. It's, it's truly a choice of the dog. It's a lesser of two evils, if you will. And, and I'd like to hear Angie's thought as far as where in that behavioral matrix or behavioral theory matrix that falls. 
but for, for me, who's been doing this, I don't know, 22 years now, that that's the mechanism. The mechanism is that we are showing that the dog, that the alternative to pick up that object or get that object or place that object in their mouth is better than what they're doing. If they just sit there and, you know, bite down and be like, Nope, not doing it, not doing it, not doing it. So we utilize that to, you know, from the table, down the table, from the ground, short distance, extend that distance, extend that distance. And it's regardless whether that dog would do it on his own recognizance or not, because we want it to be ingrained as a skill that when I say that word, whatever my key word is, fetch, go get it, whatever it may be, that unequivocally in that dog's mind, it understands I go in this direction until I find something valuable enough to pick up and pick up and return straight back to me. So, you know, that's what builds our mechanism. The 50 yards across water, to me, that's, you know, with what we do in training and and support of NAVDA and other testing organizations, that builds a mechanism for us so that when we begin some more advanced training, such as the duck search and stuff like that, that if the dog kind of balks or, you know, is hesitant or is kind of a little bit unsure about himself that we could push him just a little bit further and say, Hey, look, go, go this way. Keep going, keep going. You're going to find something. I promise you, but you have to go that way. Mm-hmm. No, nope, sounds good. Sounds, sounds, you know, it's, it's a force fetch program. Uh, toe hitch you do, you ended a, a, at a little different stage than most people. Uh, Angie, Describe how what your retrieving method is. And I know that you said that you started at a very young age with food in the kitchen. So start there and then just kind of go through it just like Scott did his. So, yeah, I do a lot of basically what I call like we call them pre-training exercise with puppies, where basically what I do is I just drop a piece of food and then the puppy picks up the food and I run away and the puppy follows me and I give him a piece of food. And that basically kind of progresses into me throwing the food. The dog goes and picks up the food and then comes back to me, gets another piece of food. And I like doing that just because there is no retrieve item in the mix. This is all totally informal. There's no, I don't need to get into item handling at this point. Because one of the biggest problems with throwing a retrieve item is your dog goes and gets the item. Well, now they're chewing on the item or they're trying to play keep away with the item or they're trying to do all sorts of stuff with the item that you don't want them to do. And now you have to bring corrections into this when the dog doesn't know what he's actually supposed to do. So with the food, it's just I go out and I get something and I come straight back. I go out and I get something and I come straight back with no item in the mix. And that's all totally informal, right? This is not a training process. This is just what I call a shaping exercise. So so you're not using any command or, or verbal cue at all at this point? You're just doing just the behavior pretty much? No, I'm just showing the dog that there is value in going out and getting something. And coming straight back. And oftentimes what I'll do is I'll throw the food into a corner. And then that prevents them from actually doing the run past the food. And then turning around and coming back, picking up the food and then coming back. So they have to go into the corner and do a nice tight turn and come straight back. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And and so then how do you... I'm going to interdict a little bit here. This isn't... I know this was supposed to be the argument phase there, Nick, but this isn't indifferent than what I encourage. (laughs) 
I encourage with a lot of our young dog, puppy dog owners, you know, it's that whole thing with, you know, if your dog brings you something, the only thing that out of your mouth should Mm -hmm. be good dog. And I don't care if it's your wife's or your personal, you know, Louis Vuitton shoes and like your dog has it and it's bringing it to you. There's two things at play there. One, there wasn't a lot of management on Angie's side, like she says, where you're not watching the dog. I was about to say management or (laughs) impulse control or anything (laughs) like that. But if that dog had enough cognizance and desire to carry something to you in his mouth or her mouth, and then, you know, happy as all can be, and then you can take it from that dog, then that's a win. That should be a positive situation. Now the time for corrections, when you go replace that item where it was at and, you know, the puppy runs back to it and you're kind of like, Oh no, no, that's not, uh, uh, that's not what we want. And then you should immediately offer an alternative. Um, but yeah, no, I've had that happen to me before too, where I had a dog, we were just sitting out in the field. It was a very, very young puppy, like maybe three months old. And we're just sitting in the field and he's running around doing his thing. And I'm just sitting there kind of enjoying the sunshine. And all of a sudden I feel like this thud in my lap and I look down and here's this super proud puppy has just dropped a crow in my lap that had to have been dead like at least a week or two. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, oh, what a good, uh, good puppy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was good impulse control on your end there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Andy- but yeah, that's just, that is just like, that is not formal retrieving. Like that is not a substitute for your force fetch or any kind of formal retrieve training. That's just building yeah. an attitude about retrieving. That's all that's doing. So when I go into, now we're into formal retrieve training. So I've yeah. done a lot of work before this because retrieve training is an advanced level thing for the dog. This is not something you start out with. You need a bunch of groundwork done before, even with force fetch program, you need to have groundwork and a relationship established with that dog before you get into any kind of retrieve training. And so what I do, I actually don't even use a table. I use a rolling office chair. (laughs) And part of that is just my obedience background where I like dogs to deliver straight to front. I add the deliver to heel Mm -hmm. in later if I'm going to do that. And so what I do is I sit in this rolling office chair and I've got a piece of PVC pipe and my clicker or my yes word or whatever I'm going to use. And all I do at the start is I just hold this piece of pipe out. And as soon as the dog even looks at it, click reward. And then what I start asking for a little bit more, I want the dog to come up and touch it. Click reward, click reward. And then once they've got that down, I ask for a little bit more. Okay, now I want you to put your mouth on this item. Click reward, click reward. So, and I'll just basically keep adding that until I can say, take it. And the dog takes the item, puts it in their mouth. Click reward. Now, the clicker is really important here because the click signifies the end of the exercise. Because I know you talk to a lot of bird dog trainers that use force fetch. And in that type of program, yeah, your dog should not be dropping the item. But the click signifies the end of the exercise. So as long as your dog drops the item once you've clicked so that they can take the food, that is okay. And so what I'll do from there is I'll actually, I won't even teach hold right away. I will teach face handling exercises, right? Where I need the dog to let me put my hands over their face 
And then because a lot of dogs don't like having their faces handled, especially if you put like both hands around their muzzle, they don't really like that. So I will actually teach that as its own behavior where I wrap my hands around their muzzle and they have to accept that. And so I click reward, click reward. And then I'll actually do it where I have both hands around their muzzle and I'll actually lead the dog around. So the dog has to keep their muzzle in between my hands and follow me around. So that's a really good way later on when they do have an item in their mouth. If I need to say like, no, you need to hold this or no, you need to come up closer to this position or whatever. So now I can manipulate the dog with an item in their mouth. And I can also handle the dog's mouth without them feeling uncomfortable about it. And so then I'll teach hold. Like I actually do that the same way a lot of people do with the force fetch program. It's just basically I use positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement. So I'll put the hand in my dog's mouth because the nice thing about the hand is they really want to chew on your hand. So you put the hand in the mouth and you just say, hold, and you wait till they stop. And as soon as they stop, oh, click reward. Put the hand in the mouth, they go, hold, as soon as they stop, click reward. And well, basically, it's basically the same process that you would go through in a force fetch. We're basically just using a clicker instead of the release of pressure. And so I know there's programs out there that exist like that already, but they're usually within programs that consider themselves force free. And that, like, it's where, that's where it ends. There's no introduction of pressure whatsoever. Whereas I will teach the behaviors through mostly positive reinforcement and negative punishment by taking rewards away if they don't do what they're supposed to. But I will layer in pressure after the fact, after the dog knows the behavior, just like you would call or condition any other behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it does, and it, it's a com- completely different program than I've ever done. I know I've had a listener, I don't know, probably six, seven months ago, actually send me videos of him doing that with the rolling chair and everything. So I can't remember his name or else I'd, I would give him credit for it. But uh, <laughs> pretty much what you described is what he showed me. And at the time, I'm like, I hadn't seen or heard anything like this before. Scott, what's your first impressions on the good, the bad, the ugly, in your opinion on, on that method? And then Angie, you know, kind of give us your thoughts on why you don't just stick with the, your typical quote unquote force fetch program. So for me, what Angie described, it's, it's not dissimilar to what we do anyway. Um, we actually do a lot of that, what she calls shaping exercises, um, you know, through our foundation obedience and, and showing the dog what we want them to do, uh, through play through, you know, some play retrieves and stuff like that. And, And very similar you know, during the play piece, it is kind of like a, it, it's a no pressure, no, no stimulation or anything like those along those lines. But if the, if the dog does correctly, then the dog gets rewarded. If the dog doesn't do exactly what we're asking him to do, then the dog does not get a reward. So it, it, it does become a negative, um, negative punishment situation. So really that leading up to everything until she gets in the roller chair and and squeaks around in in her yard or wherever um, is very similar. We still do that. Even if it's a dog that's a year, year and a half old or something along those lines coming to the kennel for training for force vest training, we still spend 
two and a half, three weeks, maybe even a little bit longer, developing that relationship with that dog, going through the obedience, showing that dog what right looks like and, and expectations without a lot of pressure and stuff. So, and obviously if, if everybody's got a new dog, a brand new puppy or something like that, these are all things that we do, you know, with our personal gun dogs as well. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, throwing a dog, a toy or something like that, encouraging the dog to bring it back directly, rewarding upon, on, on a success, not rewarding upon a failure. You know, that's all stuff that we do to develop that young dog. But there is that point where we transition, where it sounds like Angie's much more of a supporting of the dog's natural desire to please um, and to, you know, something that she's developed over that dog's lifespan or, or through many months. We try to con- constrict it a little bit to get a, a level of performance out of the dog in a little bit shorter of a time frame. Whether it's right or wrong, um, I mean, you know, me and Angie had this little bit of discussion the other day when we were talking and stuff is uh, the challenge that every pro trainer has. I don't care who you are. Every pro trainer. Somebody brings me their dog. That person writes me a check. At the end of the period that that dog is with us, we kind of have to show something. You know, I, I can't walk up and show you the same dog that you dropped off. 30, 60, 90, six months, you know, 30, 60, 90 days, six months earlier. I can't. Or with, or, you know, we'll say somebody that's been there, you know, if I've got a dog that's been here for five months, I can't show you, oh, look, when he got here, he didn't know how to sit, but now he knows how to sit. You know, we do have to show, (laughs) we do have to show (laughs) at least some progression in in what we're trying to do with a dog. So that does kind of constrict us a little bit. And that's, that, that is one reason why we use the methods that we use. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one of the biggest misconceptions about my method is that people are like, oh, well, you know, that sounds like it's a lot slower. It's not, but it can be. Um, because in the gun dog world, like force fetch has been around forever, right? right? People in the gun dog world know force fetch inside out and backwards, and it is something that they do well. So for them to switch to a new system, even if that system in hands that do know that system as well as someone that knows force fetch, it goes at the same pace. If you're learning that new system, then it can take a little bit more time. So, I mean, it's not necessarily a speed issue. It's just a, it's a speed issue because force fetch is where you're comfortable and that's where you're going to get the best results because that's what you've had the most practice with. So what would you say, I'm going to step in here, Nick, what would you say then, um, how would you deal with a dog that has, well, I'm going to throw a scenario at you, Angie. You've got a one, I'll say a 16 month old. So not quite one and a half year old high drive, high desire dog that has had very little, if any foundation obedience within its own household. How do you get that dog to start Mm -hmm. seeing the reward in what you're trying to accomplish, um, you know, with the force fetch program? Well, if I have a dog like that, I'm not starting 
like, I'm not doing retrieve training with that dog at all to start with, obviously, because that right. dog does need an obedience foundation. Right. Before I can even start any kind of retrieve work. So now are you asking how I get them to see the value and the reward so I can start with obedience training and get them to do it for rewards? Yeah, more more after yeah, I would say probably after you've conducted your obedience training. So this is a dog, I would say maybe I'm not describing the dog well, but it, we'll say a dog that has a low cooperation um level. Okay, so is it a low cooperation level just because it's super high drive and wants to run around and get into everything else? Or is it non-cooperative because it just really isn't interested in doing the work? I would say the latter. Like because it's low drive. I would say the, well. Okay, so it just doesn't want to do it? Right. That, that's a tricky situation because I've seen a lot of high drive dogs that just don't want to do the work. They're just... I would say have a low cooperation level. This is kind of a pet peeve of mine with where I hear people say, my dog's really cooperative. That's why it sits around me. No, your dog has a drive issue or, Oh, my dog has got <laughs> immensely amount of drive and finds this and this and this. But every time I call, it comes back. Okay. But is that cooperation? When you look at how that dog performs in the field, is the dog wanting to be around you? Is the dog wanting to work with you? Or is the dog, when you tap it on the head, 200, 300 yards away and not looking back, could care less whether you're in the field or not? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're dealing with a dog that is just super high drive, it's just like nutso. Those are actually the kind of dogs that I really shine with. I am really good at getting those dogs to start working for rewards because for me, it's easy because that dog is the way they are because they are so highly motivated. It's just no one has taught them what to be motivated for. So I kind of have to flip that on its head. And I actually really enjoy those kinds of dogs. And that's where me and some of the other trainers in the area that are a little bit more traditional get along really well is because when they have those kinds of dogs, they're like, go see this girl. She knows how to deal with those. I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> but like, so with the other kind of dog that like, so if you have a dog that's just like no drive at all, has no interest in the work whatsoever, those dogs are also super easy for me because, well, I mean, if you have a dog that really does not want to retrieve and absolutely hates it, Perhaps you have the wrong dog for the job, right? If you're trying to train a retriever and they don't want to retrieve, maybe get a different dog, right? I don't want to, like, I mean, I don't want to stuff a square peg into a round hole because that's, I just don't find that's fair to anybody involved, whether it's the owners or the dogs. But right. then we have these dogs that are in the middle that they want to do the work, but they're not super highly motivated to do it. So yes, in that situation, that might be a situation where I would force fetch a dog because I do find with the lower levels of motivation to go out and do stuff, the more compulsion we have to use with those dogs that are just bouncing off the walls and they want to do something all the time. Even if it's not what I want them to do at the beginning, I can still work with those dogs through motivation because they are highly motivated. Whereas the dogs with less motivation, I have to use more compulsion with those dogs. 
I try to avoid it, but some dogs, it's just like, well, you know what, you can do this and they want to do it. And especially for some people, like those are exactly the kind of dogs they want. They don't want, so like if we're talking about retrievers, just because this is a really easy example to use for this, a lot of people don't want to be sitting in a duck blind with that lab that's just like shaking and constantly like, oh my God, I need to go get that dog. They don't want to deal with that. They want the dog that's just content to sit there. Oh, look, a duck fell down. I'm going to go on out there and I'm going to pick that duck up and I'm going to bring it back to dad, right? That's the kind of dog they want. But those are the kind of dogs that you do need to use more compulsion with because they just, you can't motivate them as much to want to go out and get that duck. You do kind of have to push them a little bit. So so really, I, I heard a lot of that throughout that explanation is reward-based, finding the reward for the dog and you know in, in your program it was like you said the clicker was really important i know that you said that you overlay the pressure later uh to so that you have that that catalyst to to drive them if you need to i want to know your thoughts on reward ratio though because at some point you know you can sit there if you have a food food driven dog you can sit there with a clicker and treat or food all day long, click, treat, click, treat, get them to do whatever you want if they're really driven like that. At some point, though, you're going to be out in the field. You're going to be hunting. You have to take that away from them. At what point do you start ratioing that reward system? And, you know, just walk us through your thought process on, on the ratio, Angie. Okay, so... One thing I am going to say, this is one of my biggest pet peeves when I talk to people about using food, their rewards is they're like, yeah, but then I have to have food rewards on me all the time. And I don't want to have to take food rewards out into the field with me. And like, I mean, yeah, okay, I get it. Like, you don't want to be having to reward your dog every single time it does something. I get that. But at the same time, it's like, you can put the effort into keeping your e-collar charged, remembering to put it on your dog, remembering to have it with you all the time but you can't put the effort into making sure you got a couple treats in your pocket. <laughs> but so with reward ratios, what I'll tend to do is like in the beginning, in the learning stage, it's a reward for every behavior. And then what I'll do is when the dog has it down and they really kind of get it going, I will go to every second time they do the behavior to every third. And then I'll go to a variable reinforcement schedule where one time it'll be every second time they do the behavior, then every third time, then every time, and I'll switch it up before I go into something that's totally, totally random. Because it's not even so much a fact that I don't want to have to reward my dog every time it does something. It's more of the dog gets bored, right? Oh, I do the thing, I get the treat. I do the thing, I get the treat. And it's... <sighs> It's boring. And so the reward will really lose its luster if you keep doing that and giving them a reward every single time they do something. But if you look at, so look at slot machine players, right? You go to Vegas, like there are people that have ruined their lives over being addicted to these slot machines. And so that's kind of, it's kind of what we're trying to do with our dogs is basically turn them into slot machine addicts, right? We want them to keep pushing the button like, oh my God, what's going to get me reward? What's going to get me the reward, <laughs> right? And I mean, when you do get that big payout, so you hit the button and the slot machine does finally pay out, you're like, yay! And then what do you do? Are you done? You're like, 
yeah, okay, I've got my reward, I'm going to quit. No, you're going to keep hitting that button. So (laughs) what happens when you get that reward is it fuels a release of dopamine. And it's not so much the reward that fuels the release of dopamine at this point. It's the maybe of, will I get the reward that's actually fueling the dopamine release at this time? So what you want to do is you basically need to go on the slot machine reward schedule when the dog never knows when that reward is going to come. And a lot of times, like I often switch my dogs to a toy reward as they get older, because I mean, their food, like their food drive tends to fade as they get older. Like my own dog, we were talking about this on the the last podcast. I could have a piece of steak and he would not care at all about that piece of steak when he's in the field. So I usually just use a toy reward, which is good for one, like a couple of reasons. One, I don't have to have food on me. I just have a tiny little ball that goes in my pocket. And two, it's a, it's a more highly motivating reward for them so that when they do get a reward, it's like that big jackpot payout as opposed to, oh, look, I pushed the button. I got 10 cents. Oh, look, I pushed the button. I got 10 cents. Instead of, oh my God, I pushed the button like a hundred times and got $0. But on that hundredth button pressed, I hit the jackpot and now I've got half a million dollars. Yeah. So, so Scott, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, as, as your typical average, you know, I hear it all the time from other people in NAVDA, especially at at these training days is, you know, the, the reward for the dog is the hunt. It's the bird in the mouth. You know, what, what are your thoughts on reward based systems uh, for training these dogs in the field? So not, not terribly, dissimilar to Angie other than the fact that we really kind of start, I would say overlaying some sort of marker for, for us, you know, as well as you is, is the yes word or some sort of physical touch with a dog. So, you know, once we start randomizing that food reward, depending on what that dog's motivating drive is, I mean, dogs for me break down into three categories. They break down into food driven, reward driven or toy driven, prey driven, um, and or touch. So there's some dogs that really only get that endorphin release when you touch them and pet them on the head and stuff. But we ultimately, whatever that reward system is and i think angie used currency at one time whatever that currency is whatever you're using to pay your dog for for a positive reaction out of that dog is that um we we overlay a marker with it and that marker could be you know your yes or just you know your your tap on the head or your good you know good dog you know something along those lines and we try to we try to you know, a transition to that during our formal training piece. So when we're, tar- when, you know, just like Angie said, when we're first teaching the dog a skill, you know, it's, it's reward, it's reward, it's reward, it's food, it's a marker, it's food, it's a marker. Then every now and then it's just the marker. It's just, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if the dog performs great and then we'll even, you know, from a, uh, I think Angie said, what is it? Angie, you did one that was every single time, and then you did one where it was a variable, I believe. 
or and then one that was a randomized. But every second time, and then every third time, yeah, and then you start to randomize it. Right. So once we kind of get to that randomizing period, but during the entire time, we are still marking that reward with some sort of audible something. And, and sometimes it's an audible and a physical. So sometimes it's a yes and a, and a pat on the head or a good dog or a rub of the ears or something like that. What that allows us to do is that when we do transition to the field, you know, um, I know Angie's not big into NAVDA, but when we transition to the field, um, yeah, I still carry treats in the field. I still carry treats when I go, you know, when I go hunting, I can't carry treats when I go testing though. Um, don't get caught with a pocket full of treats when you go out right. to the test. Um, <laughs> I actually can't carry my ball any, when we were doing field trials either. So right. you so, do have to be able to work your dog without the rewards. Right. And, and so for, for us, we transition to, you know, much like force fetch, when you transition for, from a physical pressure to an e-collar pressure, we do transition from a, a physical reward, whether that's giving of the food or a touch or something along those lines to just a marked reward. So the, the yes or something like that. And we make sure that that marked reward has just as much value um, as whatever that other reward was. Uh, so really the dog starts to learn because I mean, everybody, you know, your dog goes out solid lock solid on a bird you put the bird up you shoot the bird the dog goes retrieves it comes back to you nobody's going to tell you you can't tell your dog yes good dog good dog you know i mean that's mm -hmm. that's pretty standard everybody's like yeah reward you know tell that dog he's a good dog so you know it, at the end of the day that that's <laughs> what we try to transition to right I mean, it makes sense at some point, especially during testing, uh, you know, you want the dog to transition to where it's really just enjoying its work and just being out there and, and getting a good verbal or touch reinforcer from you. Uh, that That's really all the reward that's needed. But, you know, it when we talked about doing this episode is I, I I didn't really think that we were going to get on here and it was going to be, you know, this huge debate and, you know, I was going to have to turn off one of y'all's microphones at some point <laughs> because y'all were, you know, cursing at each other. Uh, but I thought it was a great opportunity to show that with, with good understanding of how dogs learn and, and experience in two completely different areas of the world and two completely different really realms. I mean, Angie did a lot of shoots and, and, and even horses and stuff like that. Just understanding the why yep. it doesn't really make a difference on the how, you know, it's just like how many times Scott, do you think you said on this episode, Angie would say something and you would say, that's really not that much different than, than what we do. But that's because the why is the same, right? The how is mm -hmm. different and, and how you go about doing it. And th that was the real, the, the main point that I was wanting to get in this episode is because, you know, e the force fetch is probably the obvious thing, you know, two completely different hows, but the why is there. And then, and then what y'all were just saying about the reward, the why is the same, but the how is different. And that's what I want people listening to this episode take away from it, that it does not matter how, if you understand the why and you're able to read your dog and you keep in mind that the greater purpose of why you're doing it a certain way that's really the important part right mm -hmm. no i so go ahead so with that is it 
I was just going to say, is there anything else you two wanted to add on before we, you know, start plugging everybody's stuff and, and telling everybody <laughs> where they can find Angie and say, you know, you, you're dumb because you said this. And then Scott, you're dumb because you said that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this because I know what Angie's no, response is, is I'm going to say, don't play <laughs> tug of war with your dog. Unless you understand <laughs> the how and the why. <laughs> how? <laughs> yeah. I think and I, I will agree with that. This. We do need to touch on this because I said that in that episode when she said that, I said, you know, I see a lot of people messing that up. I see myself messing that up. I'm not I'm not messing with that. But, you know, Scott, I, I think I even shot you a few screenshots and Angie had some follow up. I think we we found an underground society of the dog training world of people using <laughs> tug of war to train their dogs, because I think that was the number one comment of follow up that we've gotten since we started like a specific comment in a podcast podcast episode we got so much feedback from people like coming out of the closet saying i do that too for the same exact reasons yeah so scott give us break it down on the importance of understanding the how and why of that real quick <laughs> so yeah again the caveat is, is that me and angie did talk you know prior to this podcast briefly and i absolutely understand what she's doing and I absolutely understand and believe that it, it can work and it can work successfully, um, especially with a dog that maybe, you know, me and her, like I just kind of teased her with, with asking, you know, well, what about a dog that, that doesn't want to do it or a dog that, you know, doesn't associate a, a standard or a formal training program that would support a, a, a fetch or something along those lines? And basically all she's doing is she's turning it into play. And, and that's not a bad thing, not a bad thing at all. Um, but the, the biggest piece of this is going to be for me personally is timing. Your, your timing on when you release, when you get that dog to chase and when you reward the, the behavior is so crucial that, that I think, and I'm not, trust me, I'm not, I'm not, saying your listeners can't do it or, or it's like, oh man, it's a bridge too far. But to me, it's, it's something that you really have to understand the process and really understand what you're doing before you try to attempt this. Because if, if gone wrong, you know, it could really create some serious training hurdles down the road. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you could also say the same thing for force fetch too, right? Like I wouldn't just say so to somebody, yeah, force fetch your dog and leave them with no other details. And then right. this person that has no dog training experience goes out and attempts to force fetch their dog. Well, they can create a lot of really bad problems that are going to be very hard, if not maybe impossible to fix. Right. So it's just, again, one of those things that you need to learn thoroughly before you attempt it. It's not scary. It's just something yep. you need to put your due diligence into and you don't want to just go jumping into. I absolutely agree. I will say there's more literature on how to force fetch your dog versus how to oh. play tug of war with your dog, though. <laughs> 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 okay, there's more literature on how to force fetch your gun dog than there is on force on how to play tug of war with your gun dog specifically. There is a lot of literature out there on how to play tug with your dog, though. 
you just have to look more into the protection sport end of things. You're right. Oh, You're wow. actually right. See, that's what that that's what we're after. All right, there we go. So, <laughs> so uh, Angie, Angie, recap real quick where they can find you and what you got going on. Okay, so you can find me on Facebook just at Elite Gun Dogs, or you can find me on my website, which is www.elitegun or Elite Sport Dogs. Sorry, dot com. Um, yeah, and I've. Uh, I've actually, I have two different websites. So if you go to the website, it'll tell you to select gun dog or pet training just because the area I'm in, uh, the trainer that was here moved to Calgary. So he's too far away. So I basically got a bunch of pet clients that have no trainer and they're like, there's nobody else here that does what he does. Can you please help us? So (laughs) that's kind of what I'm doing now. And then I've got, I still have my bird dog stuff. Like I just got a field. uh, It's actually only like 10 minutes drive from me now to go use for clients. So I've started to get clients out there when it warms back up here because it's Canada and it's the dead of winter (laughs) and it sucks. But I've actually started doing some indoor gun dog classes now. There's a facility in town that started renting me their area. And we're actually just doing obedience training inside for gun dogs just so people can actually get out and do something because between COVID restrictions and winter, people are itching to get out. So... And it's actually been kind of neat because it's getting people to actually work on their obedience so that when we do get out into the field in the spring, it's not going to be so much craziness, I hope. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Scott, you got anything that you need to plug right now? No, it, it's really boils down to, I mean, everybody knows how to find us, Rusty Guns Kennel, uh, on Facebook and stuff. Um, I really like Angie. I mean... And we, we had a cold snap this week. We got, I down like to, you too, Scott. We got down to 42 degrees this week. Just, <laughs> just let you know, really bad cold snap in North Carolina. Ooh, um, Like, okay. Like 42 Fahrenheit above zero yes, or below zero above below. Oh, above. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. But what we have been dealing Bam. with and what I can, what I can promote for exactly what Angie's saying. And this is what I love about, you know, how she looks at things and kind of how we look at things too, is, um, Nick, you know, we've in the Southeast, we've been decimated by rain. I mean, I, I swear we live in the Pacific yeah. Northwest right now. I mean, I think we're 18 inches over what, the high was in 1918 or something like that right now in the Southeast. So, I mean, we've been doing a ton, a ton of training inside and, and in the kennel and and stuff like that. And everything from the impulse control place board work, the foundation obedience stuff, and just making sure it's very black and white with the dogs. And it just seems like everything's going so much easier when you do get a nice day like we had today and you transition to the outdoors, it's, you know, the dogs are like, Oh yeah. Okay. I know what to do now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a huge plug guys. Don't, don't be afraid if you don't have X amount of acres and land and property, most, most families in most places, you've got a garage, you know, you've got a place where you can work place board work. You've got a place where you can work basic foundation obedience stuff it's only going to set you up for success later on yep. hey i trained Absolutely. my first bird dog in the city there's a lot i think there's even a podcast about training bird dogs in the city <laughs> yep there's been a few of them <laughs> uh, 
Well, guys, I appreciate it. I think I think we got our point across. And, uh, you know, Angie, thanks for the idea. Scott, thanks for uh, tagging along. And, no, and we'll no see problem. how much uh, hate mail we get off of opinions on this one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, thanks. And, guys, we'll check back with you next week. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Angie. Love you to death. <laughs> Love you too, Scott. <laughs> Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us and our partners on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to contribute even more to the future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.